You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. So I'm Ronica Rooks. I have a PhD in sociology and have done postdoc work in uh, geriatric epidemiology and also in health disparities. And I'm a professor at the University of Colorado, Denver in the Department of Health and Behavioral Sciences. I've been interested in racial and ethnic health disparities uh, related to even economic outcomes like social determinants of health with education, income, and occupation as far back as I can remember in terms of college, taking sociology and history courses on this topic. Uh, But one of my experiences on my professional journey examining health disparities was surprising and somewhat discouraging along the way. So I wanted to recount that. In my first postdoc during a social gathering, I remember telling my mentor's husband that my research area was racial and ethnic health disparities, and at the time I was at the National Institute on Aging as a postdoc. And his response was that he thought health disparities as a research area wouldn't last. Health disparities to him was just more of a hot topic and passing phase rather than something to build my career around. And I remember being shocked that this person would belittle my research interests, and I didn't know how to respond at the time. But despite what he said, I knew I would just keep pursuing my interest area in this research because I was passionate about it, and it didn't really matter what he thought. (laughs) I saw myself sort of like a detective trying to figure out what drives racial and ethnic health disparities and how to fix them. And these questions drove my research explorations. And you know what? I never even told my mentor at the time to this day (laughs) that that happened. Imagine 20 years ago having someone tell you that racial and ethnic health disparities are a trend. They're not worth devoting resources toward understanding. If only that person could fast forward to today in 2023 when we're on the tail end of a pandemic and health disparities are still in our public discourse and are very much a topic of research agendas across disciplines. I could argue that health disparities are especially important in aging studies, given that there are more older adults in America right now than at any other time in history. That's a statistic from the National Institute on Aging, which, by the way, in 2020 named health disparities as a core goal of their strategic directions for research through the year 2025. But you didn't come to this podcast to learn from me. Instead, today you'll be hearing from health disparities expert, Dr. Ronica Rooks, an associate professor at CU Denver who studies the social ecological spectrum of factors that contribute to health inequities affecting older adults. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So first things first, Ronica, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast and bringing this topic to us today. I am very much looking forward to talking to you about this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
So I wonder if you can take us back to the start of your, you know, higher education around these topics and kind of set the landscape for us from then till now of what are the statistics and trends around healthy aging um, when you break it down by racial and ethnic groups? Sure. So racial and ethnic disparities in health and healthcare remain a persistent challenge in the United States just to be clear. And these disparities have worsened due to COVID-19, as you mentioned earlier, Hannah, in terms of increased mortality risk associated with different types of employment, education, income, neighborhoods that people live in, healthcare access, even trust in healthcare, and also the number of deaths, not just the mortality risk, but the number of deaths across minoritized groups have increased because of COVID. So those are very big health disparities and made people more aware of it through COVID-19. And then specifically to think about these disparities across different racial and ethnic groups, I found a report to kind of give the latest data from Hill et al. in 2023 from the Kaiser Family Foundation. And their research, of course, is building on others in the past, but it's just the latest statistics that they show that African-American or Black or Latino or Hispanic, as well as American Indian and Alaska Native people fared worse than white people across the majority of health and healthcare and social determinants of health measures. Specifically, Black people fared better than white people for some cancer screening and incidence measures, although they had higher rates of cancer mortality. And despite worse measures of health coverage and access and social determinants of health, Hispanic people fared better than white people for some health measures, including life expectancy, some chronic diseases or conditions, and most measures of cancer incidence and mortality. So these findings might reflect variations in outcomes amongst the different subgroup populations within Hispanic or Latino people, um, so that better outcomes are really more for some groups, particularly more recent uh, immigrants to the United States. And... And even in, you say, American Indian and Alaska Native populations and uh, Black populations as well, there's a shorter life expectancy at birth and compared to white adults in the United States. And this is even latest statistics from 2021. And American Indian and Alaska Natives, Hispanic and Black people experienced larger declines in life expectancy than white people between 2019 and 2021. And again, this is in part due to COVID-19 over time that the life expectancy has decreased in the United States. And then Asian people overall, they fared the same or better compared to white people for most examined measures. And again, this is in part due to some of these different subgroups. When you disaggregate the data, that there could be very different variations in this group as well but they fared worse for measures like receiving routine care, screening services, social determinants of health, uh, things like home ownership, crowded housing, childhood experiences with racism. They also had higher shares of the people who were non-citizens and didn't speak English well, which could contribute to barriers to accessing healthcare as well. So um, this population, particularly through the pandemic, has also experienced increased discrimination, hate crimes that impact largely mental and physical health. So <clears throat> they've had to, they've been adjusting to things over time with the pandemic and like I said, sadly, more discrimination and hate crimes. And then even Native American, um, Native Hawaiian, 
other populations of Pacific Islanders as well. There's less um, specific data on them, but then uh, through the Office of Minority Health is another resource for those interested in looking at racial and ethnic disparities. They give specific profiles for different groups. And so even though um, Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islanders have limited data, I did find that the Office of Minority Health had information on this group and specifically their risk for higher rates of smoking, alcohol consumption, obesity, and they have less access to cancer prevention control programs. And leading causes of deaths also include cancer, heart disease, unintentional injuries like accidents, stroke, and diabetes. So if you'd like to find out more information about some of these groups, those are the resources that I'd refer you to, the Office of Minority Health and the Hill et al. 2023 report from Kaiser Family Foundation. Yes, and we will link those in our episode notes for listeners to go and read more. So I want to get to the question of why. <laughs> why why do these health disparities exist? And I think a place to start that is talking about social determinants of health and defining what those are maybe a little bit more because um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's kind of what it boils down to is, is you know, different lifestyle factors and social determinants that make it so that various racial and ethnic groups end up with different health outcomes. Right. And thank you for bringing up, I mean, I mentioned them earlier, social determinants of health, but I'd say a large part of my research explores a lot of these different uh, links between social determinants of health and more sort of physiological factors, so outcomes. So I'd say social determinants of health are those upstream factors that you think about in terms of associated with health, but they're um, a little bit different in terms of what people would consider as individual health care or like going in to see a doctor for a doctor's visit or something. So these are more upstreams that's considered downstream, a, a personalized visit, but these are more like economic factors like your employment, your income your neighborhood factors, uh, your housing, your transportation, parks, playgrounds, things like that, where you live. Um, then education, I'd say, even in terms of health literacy associated with that, things like your higher education, uh, the jobs that you have that are related to your education, the food that you're eating, access to food and shopping and grocery stores and um, healthy foods. I'd say you know, even within your community, the amount of support systems that you have, the people you engage with that you trust, who you ask for help, that kind of community connection and capacity building amongst neighbors helping each other. And then even healthcare as well, I think broader in terms of the types, the type of care that you have access to through your health insurance or not. And then also the quality of that care and the, um, the relationship you feel and trust with your providers to do the best by you, to care for you, how, how well you communicate with them, things like that. Yeah. And so some of your research has looked at gentrification. And I know I've, I've looked through some of your publications and um, one of your abstracts started out with the justification of, you know, little gentrification research has focused on issues like where the neighborhood we live in, how that affects our aging and how these social determinants of health affect our aging trajectory. So why is that? 
Mm-hmm. I would think gentrification research would be all on top of that, but apparently no. <laughs> so let me start with neighborhoods as part of this impact on our aging health outcomes. So neighborhoods where we live, again, that has an impact on our health. And primarily people talk about it through three things, through like physical, social, and service environments. And so for things like the physical environment, this is including the built and natural environments, and those impact older adults' housing, like affordable housing, single level, modified housing needs, accessibility issues, uh, neighborhood infrastructure, things like accessible sidewalks, ramps for walking rather than steps to lower your risk of falling, uh, close proximity to be able to get to and access shopping, healthcare, other amenities, and again, affordability with those accessible parks, open spaces, trails for physical activities. Um, For older adults, often it's going to be walking. And then traffic, crime, air pollution that might inhibit outdoor activities. So also social environments. So these are the things like the relationships that you have with your neighbors, uh, the quality of those relationships that impact trust, uh, protect you from social isolation, that help you stay connected to others in the neighborhood, and even Again, people you can rely upon for help when you need it, and you can reach out to them. Uh, So again, building neighborhood trust and cooperation in that community and older adult social engagement opportunities are important. So this is things like participation in neighborhood associations, community centers, places of worship, libraries, helping you stay connected to other people that protects you from social isolation, which a lot of the research shows it's just as harmful as having a chronic condition and maybe more impactful on a lot of people's lives. And then service environments, that includes things like neighborhood resources that impact older adults' health. So these are things like the ability to age in place and being able to access the food and retail shopping, healthcare, employment services, even volunteering to help others. Because when you volunteer, it shows that you're helping others, sure, and that also helps you as well as an older adult. Transportation, um, home and community-based services that provide assistance with things like home health care and even home modifications for older adults. So all those things have an impact on your health associated with neighborhoods. Um, but specifically, I can also talk about gentrification now that I've given that background. So with gentrification, little of the research focuses on older adults. And I think this is because more of it focuses on working age adults. And it's likely because they are the gentrifiers often who are moving into the neighborhoods or even the adults who are already in neighborhoods impacted by gentrification, which is the the changing of the value of sort of low to high value of the homes um, accessing a neighborhood. And that's because often businesses move in, changing sort of tax base, changing the cost of living in a neighborhood. And so with these increased costs, there are some people who are already there who are going to be put at risk um, for displacement. So a lot of the literature tends to focus on either the people incoming as gentrifiers or the people at risk of displacement, leaving potentially being pushed out of a neighborhood because of the higher cost of living. And... I'd say gentrification can disrupt the familiarity of place for older adults. So with increased infrastructural resource, social connections, financial changes, which all can have a negative impact on older adults' health, 
I've been really more interested in these associations because of the higher cost of living, impacting affordable housing, accessible food, uh, healthcare, other services, even social engagement, like I said, with local activities as protection against social isolation. I've been interested in social capital or community capacity building uh, where neighbors help neighbors and particularly looking at its impact on health, sort of building those connections, sharing resources, facilitating aging in place in a neighborhood. And that community capacity building helps that for older adults in a process. And then also thinking about stress for managing increasing costs of living um, and then social isolation as potential pathways connecting gentrification to older adults' health. And the research also shows that gentrification's impact on health is more detrimental for socially vulnerable groups, particularly those who are older, Black, and Latino adults, um, even lower socioeconomic status as well. So that's the sort of background of the interests of research and gentrification for myself and uh, what's of interest to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, <laughs> No, I know. It, it's a big topic, though. So there's a lot of components that go into it. Um, recently, kind of don't know how this has happened, but recently, the last few months, I have ended up doing a lot of work projects related to this topic of like the, like the mental health benefits of being near green spaces, for example, um, and have been talking to researchers at our center, epidemiologists about the topic. And for instance, even yesterday, I listened to a podcast about, um, I'm not, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but the concept was called like 33300 or something. And it was um, a researcher who said, you should be able to look out your window and you should see three mature trees um, from where your house is at, you should be able to walk 300 meters and get close to a green space. And then I'm forgetting what the other three was about. <laughs> so, and, and so when you, you talk about places where we live, um, I just feel like I, I, people don't put a lot of stock in the fact of like, when you're in a more walkable, accessible area, um, what that can do for you and, and the kinds of development that happen around you when things are more accessible. Like there's more likely to be a grocery store nearby um, and other resources that you might need. So um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's just something I heard lately. <laughs> oh, great points that you raise in terms of thinking about some neighborhoods are better than others in terms of the connectivity to different um accessible needs with, you know, grocery shop and retail shop, and like you said, and then people, and then to being able to just step away from, say, your work life, your home life, to be able to walk in a safe neighborhood and to have trails or parks or open space makes a big difference for people. It leaves, it leaves stress to be outside and connect with the environment, and um, and it's the, probably the most likely physical activity older adults get as well by walking. So if you feel comfortable doing that, it's good to have a space where you can do so and not, you know, feel threatened. So, and knowing that there's neighbors out there who can help you as well, if something does happen to you along the way, so oh, yeah. it makes a big difference. Yeah. The term social capital framed in this context was not something I had really heard about or thought about before a couple months ago. So I like the idea of 
being more connected to your community and how that impacts your aging trajectories. So when we're talking about an older adult population, this is also a a group of people who they're in retirement. They're probably not making as much money as they, they were in their, the middle of their life. And so when we talk about gentrification, let's, let's get into that a little bit of working and the productive capacity of older adults and that shift from midlife to older adulthood, because I know that you have studied a little bit of that in your research in terms of um, dementia risk. Right. So I would say typically, yes, older adults are not, you know, once you get past 65, many of them are not working anymore. And so that makes your home and your neighborhood environment even more important because you're spending more time there. But there are some people who are deciding to continue on working. And I've been doing more research about older adults who have the ability to keep working and the types of work that they're doing as they continue to work. And and we're not always talking about the type of work where it's more manual labor, where often it's a lot of older minoritized adults who are doing that kind of work and then they're getting out of the labor force earlier. But the type of work that I've been seeing um, more for older adults that they've been doing is more of the service type work and less manual labor. And they continue to work on because in some ways it's, it gives you that physical activity, but also it gives you the social engagement with others and support from other people who you work with. Um, and even things like um, more of that sort of problem solving and cognitive functioning as well. So I think that these are the reasons why sort of working and even volunteering are beneficial to older adults as well. And so that's where I would start with some of the background about my interests in productive activities. So which includes working and volunteering as activities that contribute to creating goods and, and services in our society. So a lot of this research, when you connect it to cognitive functioning and even dementia risk, it says that it's protective, that working and volunteering. The research is clearer, definitely, for volunteering being more protective because the type of volunteering work is more consistent, I think, in the literature. Uh, But the work part, the paid employment part, is variable in the literature, not always consistently related to protective against cognitive declines or dementia risk for older adults. So this is what I've been exploring more of. And the data set that I've been using is the Health Aging and Body Composition Study. And it's a a 17-year cohort study uh, from the National Institute on Aging. And we started with 3,075 community-dwelling, well-functioning, older, black and white adults. And it was a good even mix of men and women as well who were aged 70 to 79 in 1997 to 1998. So I used that data set to examine racial uh, disparities in cognitive function and dementia, as well as to think about the whether productive activities of working and volunteering could actually um, reduce the racial disparities that existed within this cohort of older adults over time. So I'm still in the process of doing this research, but I have some preliminary findings from it. Where So I think that it was, I found some support for working and volunteering, having an impact on older adults 
with dementia among women, but not for men. And it was interesting because uh, race was significant as well. But then after you had this APOE adjustment, race was no longer significant. So, so all things equal amongst the, the sample at that point. But what it left me with was thinking about for older women that these productive activities might be possible contextual interventions to reduce dementia risk. I just need to sort of do a little bit more digging to find out more about certain aspects of these productive activities that might be important for this uh, sample of um, older adults with mild cognitive impairment in the future or even, you know, dementia risk. Yeah. Do you have any hypotheses about the sex difference and why there's a that that difference between men and women? Yeah, I know that's throwing me off. I have to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, perhaps it has something to do again with the type of tasks that we do and the work that we do. And men and women tend to have historically done different types of work, specifically older adults, you know. Um, and so yeah, the it might be something that has to do with that. The types of employment or occupations that we have that are different. It could be something like um Again, the exposure of women, sometimes often of delaying going into the labor force with childcare or taking time periods off because of childbirth and childcare, I should say. So perhaps it's something like that. Um, yeah, but my gut feeling is it's the task, the work task that we do and types of different work that men and women do. And things are becoming more equal over time. But since we're looking at an older adult population, things were historically very gender divided between men and women at the time that they were in their prime and doing most of the work. So that's what my feeling is in terms of sort of workplace differences, occupational differences, and the tasks that people do, and maybe some of the workplace exposure differences that could influence Alzheimer's disease and related dementia as well. So that's what I'm hypothesizing, um, yeah. but I definitely need to look into a different data set to be able to explore yeah. more of that um, sort of history behind the occupations we have entered and the work tasks that we do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to think that like the more, I would imagine the more collaborative your work environment is, the better that is for probably healthy brain aging and even kind of like the agency that you have over your task and, and your, your role, like if your role can evolve with time and evolve with your interest, I would imagine that's probably better than something that's just the same monotonous task over and over again. Um, I don't know. Some, some, oh, some thoughts. Absolutely. <laughs> there are models that talk about sort of your autonomy in the workplace, your support in the workplace for sure, that relate to this kind of research. And I think you're on a good track in terms of that and its relationship to um, Alzheimer's disease and related dimensions. I, I definitely feel like that has something to do with it. So good ideas. What is the takeaway for listeners from these topics that we've discussed, you know, talking about gentrification and, and how um, racial and ethnic health disparities arise from social determinants, talking about our work lives and volunteering. What is what if we had to summarize what the issue is and what the solution might be? How would you how would you tackle that? <laughs> 
feels like a career kind of question. Like over my lifetime, I've been looking at all these different things. And what are the takeaways? For me, it's just been, again, going back to that sort of detective analogy of trying to explore how do, how do I tackle an issue which is so large for racial ethnic health disparities among older adults and just so many years of contributing factors, sort of cumulative exposures that contribute to these problems with chronic conditions that older adults have. So it's just been like a detective trying to figure out, well, let me look at this to see if, you know, some of these social determinants, like I said, uh, socioeconomic status, social capital, trying different health outcomes that, again, are related as well, because uh, cardiovascular disease, which was an earlier interest of mine, and later with more uh, cognitive function and um, Alzheimer's disease and related dementia, those are risks for each other as well, I think. So um, yeah, just just trying to explore different avenues for understanding better why they exist, how to approach them with solutions, and think about interventions. And my interests have not just been about sort of medical interventions, but these non-medical interventions, um, how can we address them like and that's i think what drew me to the productive activities they're empowering for the older adult as solutions but they're also more empowering for the communities they live in too for improving things and even approaching gentrification for thinking about improving your neighborhood improving your you know relationships in those neighborhood um, improving your access to employment and volunteering as well that gives you empowerment of feeling like there's something I can do to change my situation. So ah, I think, yeah, I'm going back to that detective. I feel like I'm still trying to figure sleuth through my <laughs> ways of addressing these issues. But I think that's the take home message to try and feel like these social determinants are things that can be modified and they don't always have to be medical interventions. They can be non-medical interventions. Um, and sort of, I think recent literature has talked about um, medical doctors social prescribing some of these social determinants as health of health that have become much bigger. And um, just to let people know, hey, you can go out and do some volunteering to help work with others, but also helps you as well. You can, you know, help volunteer as sort of a civic matter to improve your neighborhood and protect, you know, from higher cost of living, you can get involved with that and it helps you and it helps others in that neighborhood. Um, with that connectivity, those social connections to others. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the bigger messaging as well in terms of thinking about solutions. The other thing that I think about when we talk about health disparities is that we live in a very individualistic society that likes to put the blame on the individual as to, you know, why didn't you adopt these habits over your lifetime so you could have healthier aging? I just think there's such value in framing it in this societal context that like you're a product of all these circumstances that you were often born into and raised into and and the blame is not on you for that. <laughs> um, right. And I, I think, too, um, just kind of taking that taking that blame like off your shoulders. And, and it's really hard to break patterns when you have been raised a certain way, you know. And, um, and it's interesting that you said that because it's often when I present my research throughout my career and people have often gone back to asking questions about the individual and 
and sort of defaulted individual characters, health behaviors or genetics. And it's like, why does this happen all the time? People always want to sort of bring it back down to that level. And I'm trying to remove or at least move and say, it's not just, you know, individual characteristics. Yes, I acknowledge that role, but it's also these other things. And so it seems like by default, people want to sort of deterministically bring it down to that. And I have constantly been fighting to move it away (laughs) from thinking individual level or genetic level that, hey, pay attention to these other factors that are just as important, you know. So this last question I want to make sure we get to before we close um, is our season closer that I'm asking every guest who comes on the podcast, which is, can you identify a major challenge in your field that you believe must be met in order to realize real increases in health span or improvements in healthy aging? I feel like we could just take this whole episode and serve that as your answer. Which is what I ended up doing as I reflected <laughs> on this question and kept thinking, no, it, I, I, it's the same. It's like what we've already been talking about, that the major challenge, I think, in gerontology is addressing racial, ethnic, socioeconomic status, health disparities across multiple chronic conditions. And in fact, more of this research is now addressing sort of innate societal racism and discrimination across many sort of social vulnerability characteristics as well. And so a lot of these things still need to be addressed with uh, health disparities research and as a challenge, particularly even for older adults. So I'd say that's that's my thing that I'm going to say is the, the big challenge in gerontology. Well, thank you for coming on our show and really describing this problem for us and helping to identify it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it as well. And I've appreciated being able to explain to listeners as well a little bit about my research and and some of my passions as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.